Hi, this is Darcy Rowling, and welcome to the Women 17 podcast, conversations with global women changing the world one sustainable development goal at a time. In each fortnightly interview, we'll learn about these women's journeys, challenges, successes, which SDGs their work contributes to both globally and locally, as well as hear tips on how our listeners can participate in the advancement of the sustainable development goals. Hi, listeners. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nairobi-based photographer and California native Alyssa Everett. Welcome, Alyssa. Hi, Darcy. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Great. I'm so excited to speak with you and really looking forward to our discussion um, today about your photography and your nonprofit, Exposing Hope. But before we get started, I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, Since 2003, Alyssa has been working to document humanitarian issues in countries around the world, including Iraq, Darfur, Gaza, South Sudan, Afghanistan, and the Democratic Republic of Congo and, Ukra- and the Ukraine, and Ukraine, excuse me. Um, Alyssa has been recognized by the International Photography Awards, Sony World Photography Awards, Siena Photo Awards, Gordon Park Photo Awards, Photography Open Salon Arles, and the International Women's Media Foundation. That's a lot. <laughs> Very talented woman indeed. Um, and in 2007, Alyssa founded Exposing Hope, which is a nonprofit organization um, set up to raise awareness and funds for victims of human rights abuses worldwide through documentary photography. I have so many questions for you today, Alyssa, uh, but let's get started with a deep dive um, into your background. I think that's always a great place to start and for our listeners to understand your journey. So can you tell us a little bit about your your background and your education? And I did say you were from California, so a little bit about where you grew up. Absolutely. I was um, raised in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and my life was mostly outdoors, um, hiking, camping, Um, time with family in nature. I went to public schools and was the fourth generation of women in my family to go to a UC um, university, so one of the University of California campuses. I went to UCLA and studied political science and international relations. Oh, that's amazing. Fourth year, fourth uh, generation. I think that's probably quite unique. Mm-hmm. Of women <laughs> yeah, your, in particular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Has your family had roots in the United States for a long time? They have. Um, part of my family is Dutch and has been in the U.S. since the revolution. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow, long time. Mm-hmm. Long time. Yeah, we were no- newly, I'm from a n- more recent immigrant family. So it was only, I'm third generation. So a little bit, uh, a little bit new to the country, mm-hmm. <laughs> relatively speaking, compared to you. Um, so after your education, I know that you uh, joined the American Peace Corps. So could you share a little bit about um, what led you to join the Peace Corps? Um, and where were you stationed? And, and uh, a little bit about your role um, uh, in the Peace Corps? So growing up in California, we were um, surrounded by people of other cultures, especially um, Hispanic cultures, Mexican. I spoke Spanish, um, started taking Spanish at 12 um, in school and was always quite curious about other cultures and places. I lived abroad, uh, did a study abroad program when I was 15 in Mexico, rural Mexico, and fell in love with it. And felt like it opened my eyes to the world in a, in a different way than I was looking at newspapers or watching TV. Um, so I really wanted to have that experience again. I wanted to live abroad 
and experience living in another culture. And that drew me to um, the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps, I thought, would send me to Latin America, where I spoke Spanish fluently. But they decided that uh, West Africa was a better choice for me. So I learned French, I learned Wolof, and moved to Senegal. Um, and that was, you know, completely life-changing experience for me. I worked with women's groups and doing income-generating activities in a very rural area. We had no electricity, no running water. Uh, there was one telephone in the village that was in the um, supervisor, the prefet um, office that was not to be used. And the nearest post office was about 15 kilometers away. So it taught me a lot about independence, about assimilation, about living with communities, about learning to work in different communities, and a lot about myself personally. Wow, that that's really remarkable. I, I've spoken to um, several of my friends who have been in the Peace Corps where, I mean, they were maybe remote, but not not to this extent. So um, yeah, that's extraordinary. And you needed to learn the language too, prior to, to going. So you needed to learn French, you said. Um, I did. I learned French. Wow. And then I learned Wolof because most people were uneducated in the village and didn't speak French. Uh, sure. So to be able to speak with the women, I had to learn the local language. Wow. Extra well, you must have a, a gift for languages then. <laughs> I'm struggling with English, so. <laughs> um, and so um, I've got two questions for you. I'd love if you could tell us a little about your role, a uh, little bit detail about what you did. And also, were you by yourself uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer um, in this remote location, or were you with others, um, in uh, other Peace Corps volunteers? No, so the Peace Corps... Um, puts places people individually in villages. The idea is that you assimilate with the culture and with the people, and that happens when you're alone. And you um, you just spend your time with people learning their language and living their lives. And that really creates a, a totally different type of connection. Um, I think that ability to make that type of connection with people who don't speak my language and aren't of the same culture um, is what informs and allows me to make the photographs that I do. Yeah. And yeah, I, mean, I would imagine so. <clears throat> yeah, getting really close to people and uh, and having those conversations with them and building trust. Um, yeah, and I love that you actually, in addition to learning French, then you're speaking the local language also, which gets them even closer. I I would imagine it was a little bit challenging to learn the language, or was it quite easy? <laughs> it was a bit of sink or swim, actually. Um, yeah, I remember the first days being in a in a host family's house, and I didn't. I, mean, I only spoke a few words of French at the time. Forget Wolof, and I remember sitting around with this entire family of Senegalese people yammering away, and I couldn't understand anything. And after about an hour or two of them looking at me and pointing at me and laughing and talking to each other, I finally was like, you know, made the motions to that I needed to like bathe. You know, they all started laughing, and, and but sure enough, they got me a bucket and they took me to the room, and I was able to take my bucket bath, and um, yeah, and then they taught me the word for to bathe, and I started being learn able to learn. But there was it wasn't a written language at the time, so um, it was all about learning, just I guess as children learn. Yeah. 
Yeah, though, that's amazing. Yes. I mean, and of course, you know, there's nothing better than hand gestures, a smile, eye connect, you know, connection with people's eyes and bodies and as such. So that's, uh, that's lovely. And it's a great way to learn a language. Um, That's what they say. They say, actually, it's probably better to learn from an, um, you know, I'm a a visual person. um, So I like to see it and written down. But, uh, but they do say that it's a great way to learn a language is just through hearing it. Um, so kudos to you for Thank learning you. that. <laughs> um, so you were there, you were there for two and a half years. And then, um, I, I would imagine, you know, after, you know, um, after your assignment was up, um, I would imagine that was quite difficult to leave at that juncture. I mean, you, you spent two and a half years in this community, very remote community, built really great relationships. Um, I, I, I I'm assuming it was difficult and I'm just wondering, you know, are there some fond memories of working there that you'd be able to share with us um, about the, the the people that you worked with locally? Yeah, well, the Peace Corps motto is the toughest job you'll ever love. And I can't tell you how accurate that was for me and for most people I know. It's, it's incredibly difficult to be that remote and far from home. Um, I wasn't able to speak to my family very often. This was before the days of internet and mobile phones and we were really, really disconnected and that forced us to create bonds with the community. I remember my first Christmas in the village and it was hot. It was about 85, 90 degrees out and sunny and didn't feel like Christmas at all. And I had a little transistor radio. I turned on the BBC radio and they were playing Christmas carols. And I was, you know, sitting at home listening to Christmas carols. I'm in a Muslim country, so I don't celebrate Christmas anyway. I get I hear a little knock on my door. And I opened up my door and the little boy who was uh, in my family he was probably eight or nine years old, came up and in English, he said, Merry Christmas. And I just broke down in tears. <laughs> it was so touching. And I was so homesick that it was, um, it was just one of those moments. And I'm still connected with him. He now sends me WhatsApps. He just um, had a kid like two, a, a year and a half ago. Um, so I get, you know, updates from him. It's, it's a family that I've, you know, considered like a second family to me still today. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. that's so sweet. What a fond memory. And I would imagine you probably practiced that a lot before you yeah, actually I think came so. in. <laughs> Given he didn't speak English. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, that's that's lovely. That's really sweet. Yeah. Oh, very nice. And so after leaving the, the Peace Corps, after after you finished your two and a half year um, assignment in Senegal, um, you worked in investment banking in San Francisco for several years. Um, certainly that's a I would imagine that is quite a change from the work that you were doing in the Peace Corps, um, then, you know, landing in the financial, uh, financial world. Um, I wonder if you could, um, you know, tell us a little bit about how you, you stumbled, uh, I wouldn't maybe say stumbled, how you got into that, <laughs> till you, how you got into financial services and how, the finance industry. Yeah, well, the Peace Corps is about development work. Um, the most of the work that I did was um, income generating skills and um, small project-based work with women's groups, helping them learn how to do a skill that could help them earn a bit of income and independence from their husbands, really. Um, The big-scale development that I saw happening in Senegal often 
was done with great intentions, but maybe not terrific follow through and seemed to um, often kind of miss the mark in terms of sustainable development. And when I left the Peace Corps, I thought, you know, I don't want to go into development. This is, it doesn't feel like it's working quite right. And I really wanted to learn about the private sector in the U.S. and what what actually did work and how I, I could take something from that and learn more about maybe how I would impact development in the future. So when I got back to San Francisco, it was the beginning of the internet boom and the people who were hiring were internet startups who paid stock options and those who provided services to the internet startups, which were banks and accounting firms and lawyers. Um, without a degree in, you know, without a, a master's degree in accounting or law, uh, the place that I was able to find a position was at an investment bank. And that gave me a really incredible access to, um, to take a look at lots of different companies. And um, in, the, in the banking world, as you're you're working with the CEOs, CMOs, CFOs of the companies, you're getting a real top-down look at these companies, not working your way up through the company. Um, so it really gave me um, a completely different insight into how things worked um, into the financial industry and, you know, ultimately wasn't something that I decided I wanted to continue on in my life. I don't think that that was really where my talent lay. And quite frankly, the motivation of working really hard to make money um, wasn't ultimately what spoke to my heart. I really wanted to make a difference in the world. So I got three years of being able to examine the most incredibly um, fast-moving, fast-growing companies, taking them public, working um, all around the country with different levels of people, but often at the executive level. Um, and it was an incredible experience, um, but it ended up being one that I wasn't interested in pursuing any further. Hmm. And I, I, I think that's fascinating, and I think it's interesting, I mean, to, you know, um, how you chose to complement the skills that you had to learn something new about something that maybe could benefit you further down the road. And, you know, maybe what you're, it was in your heart, maybe <laughs> perhaps all along, but getting those skills um, up and running. I mean, oftentimes, um, you know, I think people that I know that are in development work, they tend to go down one path and they don't actually have other skills um, that, um, you know, some, something such as this, something in, you know, having this experience in, in the financial markets and understanding how businesses operate and how money is, how money is given and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that is, that's pretty hardcore and really important as far as, in my opinion, um, through what I've experienced. I've spoken with people in, in complementing the development work. Um, I don't know. That's my impression. It's a nice compliment to the skills that you already had had. had. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. I find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and and then you decided to 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 leave the um, financial uh, the um, investment banking industry, um, and then what did you do thereafter? Well, two thousand one uh, 
was the bombing of the World Trade Centers. And I was actually in the World Trade Centers the week before uh, with some clients. And that that had a huge impact on me. It was um, devastating and terrifying. And at the same time, given what I had seen and known about the world outside of the US, I, I just had this gut feeling that that was going to change our lives forever. That one day, that one incident was going to change our lives forever. And I think it was really at that moment that I decided I really wanted to, you know, love my life every day. I didn't want to work for a future happiness. I wanted to be happy every day. I wanted to do something I felt passionate about and I felt was really um, moving. And and I didn't want to work in that sense. I wanted to do something that I was so passionate about that it didn't feel like work. It felt like an extension of myself. And that's what really turned the tables for me and was the impetus for me to um, you know, pack up bags and grab my cameras and say, I'm just going to try to do this. And I went off for most of 2002 and traveled to work on my portfolio. Um, and one thing led to another long, very long story, but um, I ended up in the Middle East and I was there towards the end of 2002. And the, the kind of buildup for the war was quite obvious when you were in the region. In the US, we weren't sure if we were going to war or not, but when you were in the Middle East, it was pretty obvious that there was a lot of um, buildup going on. And I decided that I didn't really want to go work my way up the ranks of a local newspaper. I wanted to go cover something um, and make photographs in a place where I thought somebody would really want the photographs. Um, so I packed everything up and I um, moved back to the Middle East in March of 2003. and as soon as I could get across the border, did, and went into Iraq um, to cover the war. And, you know, even as I look at it now, I feel like a little amazed at myself for doing it. I bought a car in Jordan with another journalist and we drove across the border into Iraq. And, you know, I was a freelance journalist. I didn't I didn't know what I was doing really. I didn't have all the contacts. I didn't know how to sell images. I just knew I was going to make images that somebody would want to buy somewhere. And that was the determination that I went in there with. And I ended up spending almost nine months um, covering the war, covering it from the um, American military perspective as embedded, but also spending time as I valued from the Peace Corps with the local community, getting to know the community, getting to understand all of these questions that I had about um, Islam and feminism and how society works and how they felt about the West and how they felt about this transition from a dictatorship to a democracy and, and all of those questions which were really um, you know, prescient for me. I got to spend time really understanding that from their perspective. It's interesting. I mean, what you're describing to me is almost the journalistic part of, you know, of news, right? So, so in photography, you are actually even having all of these dialogues with, with 
the local people to understand what they're going through. You're not just snapping, snapping because you see something. You actually are really getting close to the culture and understanding the the whys behind behavior or what they're thinking. That's the way I work as a photojournalist. I can't speak for everyone in that sense, but I think to make an informed image to, um, because every image has a perspective and what you choose to photograph um, says something it, and it's out there in the world as a representation of what is happening. Um, and so for me, the, you know, it, it was really what I come from. I come from this Peace Corps background. I come from wanting to understand the local community and, um, and thus I'm often working alone. I'm often moving through places um, without anyone else and I need to understand what's going on and I need to understand the context of how people are inter- engaging with me if a situation's safe or not safe what's the you know kind of temperature of the of the place um, but then also to understand what images to make one really needs to understand the issue that you're photographing mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's very interesting. I think uh, myself, this is I'm learning a lot from you. I, you know, I wouldn't have thought that. You know, I just, you know, I, I take my camera and I shoot and point, and I'm not thinking so much. I'm looking at it, thinking visually, is this appealing? Do I like how it looks? And is it is it composed properly? But I'm not thinking about all of those other elements. Again, I'm not in a conflict zone. I'm just outside in the neighborhood, um, you know, just thinking about that. But it's, you know, even in my own travels, I've never, I've never thought about that um, traveling through Cambodia or through China or wherever Indonesia and is such. I think that's, um, that, that probably lends so much to um, why you're so award-winning and why your photos are so um uh, unique and so tell stories in such a way because you actually are telling stories through all of your photos after you know spending time with with people. Um, yeah, it's extraordinary. I'm I'm wondering. Um, so you you actually on this journey. So you went into Iraq. You you didn't have the um, the the know how. You knew you want what you wanted to do, uh, but you didn't know how to like you said you didn't know how to sell the photos. You didn't you didn't know all that. Where how did that process happen. That's pretty, pretty unique going into that. Did other journalists and and photojournalists help you or how did that process go? I definitely was introduced um, to editors abroad through other photojournalists and journalists when, when I came across people. Um, I, I, you know, there was a lot of trial and error. I, I actually was um, embedded with 101st Airborne up in the north in Mosul when, when Uday and Hussein were killed. And um, I was in a helicopter above and I happened to be embedded with them at the time. And so I was the only photographer that had that access. And I wrote to the photo editor at the New York Times and said, you know, are you interested in these photographs? And they wrote back, yes, we're interested. And I said, well, you know, I was really stuck because I didn't have a contract. And I was thought, oh, they're going to think I'm really unprofessional if I don't have a contract and I don't want to sign a contract before I send off the photographs. So I went back to her with a question about that. And then it was, I think it was a Friday or a Saturday, um, and she said, you know, just send the photographs in. 
And I thought, oh, I don't know what to do. Fine, I'll send them. But And I sent them in, but I sent it to her email address. And she happened to be out of the office that day. And I didn't send them into the main picture desk at the New York Times. And she wrote me back on the Monday and said, next time we please um, CC the main picture desk because this would have been the front page of the New York Times on Sunday, but no one saw it. <laughs> it was like... I felt like such an yeah. idiot, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Well, oh well. It was a learning process. You live and so you, you learn, yeah, right? <laughs> you live, you learn. That's for sure. You live, you learn. So, um, yeah, well, that's great feedback. And you wouldn't know until you get into that kind of situation. But that's nice. I mean, I guess there's a sense of camaraderie when you are in, in a conflict zone with other journalists, with other photographers, that, you know, people are there to support each other. And um, certainly from a safety perspective, but just to support you and, and make sure that you're, you're successful. Um, in, Absolutely. In that, so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's really uh, extraordinary. Um, I, um, I, I, I wonder what your family thought, <laughs> your friends thought you've left, a, you left investment banking, packed up everything and bought yourself a car in Jordan and traveled across the border. Yeah. To a war zone. Yeah. I, you know, my family has always been incredibly supportive of me. Um, and I've learned just in the recent years, my mother has shared with me how terrified she was most of the time, but didn't dare say anything because she thought I would only go ahead and do it anyway. So she didn't bother to try and hold me back or warn me or tell me she was concerned. She, she didn't want to put that upon me, um, which was a really generous and supportive thing to do. But um, yeah, she's told me many a story since of um, how, how concerned she was. She did actually tell me that at one point she thought I was a CIA agent also. <laughs> <laughs> Were you? <laughs> yeah, which was hilarious. I've been accused of that many, many a time, but never by my own mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe you should have played that card. You could have gotten into some other places. <laughs> I definitely would have been paid better. <laughs> yeah. Doggone right. <laughs> So one of the th things, um, you know, you and I spoke before beforehand, and um, one of the things that you said to me, which um, which struck me, is that you said that you, um, your photography, that you don't take photos of negativity. Um, and I, could you expand on that? Could you explain to, to our listeners what you mean by that? And what type of message are you trying to convey with your with your photos? Well, I wouldn't say that I never make any photographs that reflect any sort of negativity in the world. Of course, there's reality. Um, but that's, I, I guess that's the point, is there is that reality, but there is also another side to that reality. And every time you see something terrible happening in the world, you can turn around and there's a completely different scene happening behind you. Um, somebody could be helping another person and um, it, there's just many, many sides to every situation. And what I have found over the years, um, and it, it's been a long journey of learning this, but what I've found over the years was that when I wanted to make images of positivity or um, tell stories, because you know, when I was in Iraq, I wasn't traveling with a, a journalist um, necessarily and so I was writing some stories as well or contributing to the writing um, 
And when I would pitch a story that I thought was a great story, that was kind of an uplifting story, people weren't interested in it. And when that story happened to turn negative, they called me back and said, oh, is this that story you were talking about? Um, we're interested in that now. And that was really disillusioning for me. Um, I, again, I take this back to the Peace Corps. I lived in a local village with a local community and and yes, there was poverty and yes, there was lack of education and yes, there was some cases of um, teen pregnancy or, but there was, there was so much beautiful and good about the people and about the culture and about life in the way that they were living life um, that I didn't feel like that was adequately represented. And, and over the years, all of the conversations and emails you know how can you dare how can you travel there are you safe do you go with security are you okay isn't it dangerous um what what i've really felt over time is that i have a even a stronger message which is that you can travel around the world and go to all of these different places and nine times out of ten you're completely fine more than that i mean the only time i've ever been mugged was in spain so it's i've been to 130 countries and i was mugged in western europe um so i think the the perception of danger the perception of the other the perception of our separation as people rather than what brings us together and our common humanity i think is is part of what divides our our world and there's plenty of people who are documenting really important work i'm i'm not saying it's not important to document the negative i just think it's also important to document the positive things that are happening in the world and i don't think enough emphasis gets put on that yeah. Yeah. I would a hundred percent agree with you. I open up the newspaper on my phone. <laughs> um, and just looking, I mean, it's all negative. It's all negative. And I'm like, can I, either I'll switch it off or I will seek something positive. And when I see that, it just, you know, brings so much joy. And, and actually the positive is so much greater than the negative. It's just what sells, right? What, what are people interested in? Um, you know, I don't know, we're funny as human beings and what we're interested in, but uh, I rather look, listen to good news all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but I guess it doesn't have it doesn't get the headlines as much um, as such. So, so you you um, you spend a lot of time in conflict zones. So, as I said at the beginning, Darfur, Gaza, South Sudan, Afghanistan, Cong Cong the Congo, Ukraine. What you know? What draws you to conflict zones? What, you know, you, I'm imagining you could just be like me taking photos in the park next door. I mean, you're in Kenya. Um, you know, what, what draws you to, to, um, to these conflict zones as a, as a photojournalist? I, I think early on it was about, um, it was about actually selling images, right? I'm a, I'm a photographer. I need to sell my images to make a living. And it was about going to places where there were news events happening um, and being able to cover those um, to make a living. There's also um, a part of me that's, you know, that really is interested in 
exposing um, human rights abuses and and when I get into those places, I'm often surprised by the things that I'm finding that are happening at the same time. Um, some of those moments of unexpected beauty that are happening in the midst of conflict, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the worst human rights abuses. And I think that ends up being a place where um, humanity is right there on the surface. And there, there isn't really an access point for for them to tell their own stories for the people of these places to tell their own stories be them in a in a positive way or a negative way um, and it feels you know there's very few people who want to travel to places like that around the world and when you're someone who can and will and actually is inspired by that i feel uh, a duty to go into some of these places yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, uh, with us. Uh, um, yeah, it, it just, it, I, I keep going back to your Peace Corps roots and that, you know, that just speaks, you know, you're telling again, storytelling and really telling the stories of people and, um, yeah, I mean, and it's, it, it needs to be told. Those stories need to be told. We don't need to look at all the, 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 um, uh, I'm just thinking of all the, the, the photos that I see that are the bad photos that are telling the negative story, um, but to see that impact on, on the people um, that, that, that it's affecting in a local way. Um, and you, I, I'm, um, you have been to Ukraine. Was that recently? Have it, was it um, in the last couple months or when were you last in Ukraine? I was on the border areas and in Ukraine um, just in March um, after the initial um, airstrikes in the end of February, I was working with IOM, um, the UN's migration arm, and uh, we were focused on telling stories of migrants, um, of refugees, and who they were, where they had come from, what their personal stories were. I was working with an editor who I'd worked with before, um, and she was really wanting to try and humanize some of the numbers that were coming across. Who are these people? Um, and uh, like my work, and so asked me to go over and cover that. Um, so I just spent a couple of weeks interviewing and talking to um, refugees that were either transiting across the border or were in temporary shelters. Um, and then I went into Western Ukraine to talk to some of the um, people in the Lviv area, Lviv and further west, who were on mm, route, moving. Yep, it's interesting. Um, we haven't seen much of that happening recently, or in the news. I haven't seen that recently. Um, I don't know if that's slowed down, or do you, do you have any bird's eye view of that um, with regards to the refugee crisis? Are they still coming out of um, of uh, the western part of uh, Ukraine right now, refugees? Um, I think what you've seen in in the western part of Ukraine is um, that some of the some of the refugees are now coming to the end of their time that they can be in Europe um, with free access. So there's some that are actually moving back into areas that have quieted down, um, but you're getting further, um, higher flows out in the eastern direction mm -hmm. um, from some of the, the 
fighting that's still going on there quite intensively. Also, there's a, a most of the Ukrainians who've been displaced are displaced within Ukraine itself. So they've gone to other family members, other um, towns, villages, locations within their own country, um, which which is not an uncommon thing to see in refugee pop situations. Syria, Iraq, most people prefer to stay in their own country if they can, because mm -hmm. it's their culture, their language, um, it feels closer to home, they want to go back. Uh, but we still have um, massive numbers of refugees that are in Europe, Western Europe. Yeah. Yeah. We certainly, we have some in, uh, where, where I live, um, we've received some, um, in the neighborhood, uh, here. Um, I'm, I'm, it, it's, it, I'm curious, have you noticed, because most of the conflict zones that you've been in have been in the Middle East or in Africa. Um, I'm wondering if there is a difference in working in, in Western Europe and, or, I guess it's Eastern and Western Europe there. I'm wondering if there's any difference in um, in what you've seen in any capacity or if you can draw any, um, and I don't know, is there anything different <laughs> is my question um, in being in a conflict zone in, in a, another location? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as a refugee population, it's mostly women and children. Um, I, in Ukraine, the men aren't allowed to leave. Um, so that's that's quite a big difference, um, though it's usually women and children who are moving in most refugee situations. Um, in Ukraine, what's different is that people are, are very well educated, they're traveling with their pets, they're traveling with um, smartphones, and they're accessing the internet, they know it's a much more sophisticated level of um, of refugee than than one would see coming out of, um, say, the DRC uh, or Sudan. You would um, they would have fewer resources. So these mm -hmm. these refugees have more resources to fall back upon. Um, a lot of them are working remotely through their jobs and. So they're still able to move, they're still able to work, they're still able to earn some money. Um, but, you know, the basics don't change. These are people that have been displaced from their homes and they're disoriented, they're sad, they've gone through traumatic experiences, they don't know what's coming, they don't know what to think about for their future, they don't know when this war will end, they don't understand the war. and. Uh, those those are very common themes that we see anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for those insights. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a little bit of a different lens, um, so to speak, because of um, the you know a little bit more money, better education, and so forth and so on, and the proximity to 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 Europe, uh, to continental Europe, to being able to cross borders quite quite uh, freely and being well received by a lot of the European um, Union um, countries. So um, so in, I'm going to shift gears a little, slightly, a little bit, stay, still um, staying with photography, of course, but um, in uh, 2006, um, I recall you saying that you had a fundraiser um, that sort of eventually led to your nonprofit Exposing Hope being launched in 2007. So um, could you tell us a little bit about that journey um, from 2006 when you had that first uh, fundraiser? 
Sure. I had been in um, Darfur, well, in Eastern Chad on the border of Darfur, uh, working in the refugee camps there for a variety of different clients. And I think that was one of my big pivot points in terms of my work. I, I was there, I was stringing for a newswire agency, some one of the stories that they were interested in me covering, I wasn't seeing on the ground. Um, it was a spreading of the violence from from Darfur into eastern Chad and and I was struggling to find any incident of that or be able to photograph that and at that point I thought you know what is it that's really striking me about this situation and what was striking me about the situation very personally was was the people themselves it was the you know, the severity of the situation that they had lived through, the horrors that they had been living through, and yet the dignity, the hope, the positivity that they expressed on a daily basis. Um, it made me feel like these are the people I want to help. Again, back, back to my Peace Corps roots. The people that need the, the hand up, the, the people that need help right now are the people who are still alive and who are surviving, trying to survive, despite all of these horrors. So I got, I made portraits of um, refugees, a dignified, human, beautiful portraits of refugees, and I brought them back to San Francisco, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with them. Uh, and I showed them to some friends, and, and that's when we decided to make them into a fundraiser. So we sold prints, we, and exhibited the work. I talked about um, the situation and what was really going on on the ground and then people were were really interested in helping they wanted to give money they just didn't know where to give it they didn't know how to give they didn't know um, where that money should go and so having someone who had just been there who could say really what's happening on the ground is this and where I think the biggest impact is is this gave people a way to direct that energy and those funds and so we um, raised money to give to the World Food Program. One of the biggest issues in these camps is always food. Um, and they're in very remote areas where the climate is not conducive to growing crops. And so they're completely dependent on food donations. And when it comes to when it comes to everything in life, if one doesn't have enough to eat, one can't go to school and study, one can't work very hard, one doesn't have the energy to do all of these other activities. And for me, what, you know, it was just the basics. We need to just keep helping them supply the basics to people to keep them alive so that they can go on and do other things. Um, and that was the beginning. Um, so we started Exposing Hope, which originally was named Care Through Action, and we've been raising funds and working on projects in different parts of the world uh, ever since, mostly addressing communities where I have been working myself, and I personally know the communities and have spent time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you, uh, thank you for sharing that. Could you walk us through um, one of the, the um, uh, charities or one of the, um, yeah, one of the charities that you're working with and, and how you're funneling and donating the money? Sure. I am. Um, I always pick a local NGO that's working 
with a population. Um, so in the Congo, I work with an organization called Heal Africa, which is a hospital that works with survivors of sexual violence. They work with a, everything hospital related, but they specifically have um, a clinic that works with survivors of sexual violence. Um, we've done a uh, series of safe houses there that are in very remote rural areas where um, where the women are experiencing ta attacks. There's low-level guerrilla warfare going on there consistently. Um, has outbreaks here and there, but the women don't have a place to go locally, nor do they have enough funds to get themselves to a major city where there's a hospital that can help. Uh, so we have a series of safe houses um, throughout the North Kivu province, and uh, in those safe houses we also do income generating activities again from the peace corps that's going to be that's the thread theme. that puts this all <laughs> together um so we do sewing projects and um, soap making projects bread making projects um, help get the women um, small loans that well grants really um that help them start little businesses and get back on their feet. Often the women having survived those situations are left by husbands or never had them in the first place and are left with children um, as a result and have to provide for them. Uh, so that's one of the things we're doing there. And I've just actually come back from the Kakuma refugee camp in northern Kenya where Exposing Hope worked with Wendell Trust on um, building a library at a secondary school for refugees. Uh, about 90% of the refugees in this school are from South Sudan. And I've done quite a bit of work in South Sudan, um, especially with unaccompanied minors who are um, a big part of the population in these camps. And the library is there. We just opened it on Friday, officially, uh, which was really exciting. The school has uh, 2,500 students and they do two schools in one because they don't have enough classroom space for all 2,500 students to be in class at the same time. So half of the half of that number go to school from 6.30 until 12.30 and they leave school and a new entire school comes in um, from about 12.30 till 5.30 in the evening. And the library gives them a place to study when um, they, after hours basically, or during class time for the other students, um, and access to textbooks because textbooks are very limited. So, yeah, that's an exciting um, new project that we've just launched. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. That uh, yeah, and all of the projects that you're working on, um, I uh, our listeners can look at you, go to Exposing Hope's website, which I'll certainly have on um, the podcast uh, blog page uh, to share with listeners. So, um, really extraordinary. And I I love you know I think what you were saying earlier is people don't know where to donate, they don't know what to do, and to have it um, you know someone that's been on the ground, someone that knows the community, knows the people. Um, I think that always gives people comfort to, you know, to know that those funds will be used and, and, um, you know, and you know where those funds are going. I mean, you're probably, yeah, yeah, you know, those people and this community. So I think that's a, um, a wonderful, um, and I, and I'll 
also like the way you had said you're working with local charities, not working while you did say you started working with uh, the World Food Program. It, most of the concentration now, I guess, is working with local community, yeah, local NGOs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I should mention here that um, exposing um, hope contributes to many of uh, the sustainable development goals through the organizations that you support, um, such as um, sustainable development goal number two, which is zero hunger, um, three, which is good health and well-being, four, quality education, and five, uh, gender equality. So, and I would imagine those, I mean, certainly through your photography, um, you span all kinds of uh, other SDGs also, but through, through exposing hope, these are the ones at present that you're focused on. So, um, yeah, wonderful. We are almost out of time. Um, but before I let you go, um, I would love to ask your advice on what you would, um, um, offer to women who are keen to pursue a career in photojournalism, such as your good self. Um, I, I, again, completely gobsmacked that you just took all your camera and off you went. So I, <laughs> um, maybe that's the, maybe that's the advice you give it, just go for it. But I just love to hear the advice that you would offer. Um, we have listeners that are, you know, young, that are at the beginning of their career and, and some that are in the middle of their career. So I think there's applicability to all, all women and, and all the listeners and all demographics. Thank you. Well, for women, I'd say now is actually a great time to get into the industry. There's much more support for women. There's networks, there's grants, there's um, just a, a large appetite for women's voices and voices in terms of media, in terms of imagery, in terms of art, in terms of writing. Um, so I think it's it's actually a good time for women and for um, people of different ethnicities and um, that's that's an exciting thing I in terms of actually getting into a career in photojournalism I think there's many many different routes I don't know any two photographers who would tell you the same story of how they entered into this world it's it's there's no textbook for it um, I think there are people who go to school and study and get connected. They start perhaps as an intern at a, at a newspaper and kind of learn their way and go up up the ropes that way. And then there are other people who are like me and um, start later, not that late, but later in their careers and um, have had other experiences and, and want to just dive headlong into into the work. I think one of the things that is really important is um, finding a particular um, niche where you have a strong voice and that could be um, the country that you're from, the community that you're from, an issue that represents you um, in terms of who you are and how you express yourself and perhaps how you grew up. Those um, those make for a very authentic, um, an authentic voice. And it's something that's new and different um, to yourself because you're unique. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of people think it's a romantic, um, have a romantic notion of traveling around the world and photographing in uh, the way that I have. And there are very few people that have been able to, to 
make a living doing that. It's not easy. Uh, I, I teach, I sell prints, I um, work off assignment, I, I do a lot of different things to make ends meet. So it's not a totally obvious um, path. But finding that passion, finding something that you are unique in saying, that you have a unique, unique voice on, is, is really the way to be noticed, I think. It's a crowded, it's a crowded industry now. Everybody with their phone has the ability to photograph. And I think that's also a really important piece. If use what you've got, if what you have is your phone, you can still make amazing images with your phone. It's really about your message and what you have to say about the world. And no, being really clear about what you have to say about the world and then finding a way to get that, you know, cut through um, is is the challenge and the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. And um, I, I like what you've said. I mean, it really uh, speak to, I, I think that that crosses across all industries and all, all jobs that we do. You want to find something that's authentic to you, something that is, speaks to you. And um, certainly as, as we've discussed, I mean, photography and the images that you have that are very, I mean, they're amazing and beautiful. And, um, I just, I look at them and I just wonder all the stories behind them. Um, but I think that, that, that's such wonderful advice. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, be authentic, I think, and be mm. and, and true to yourself and, and what, what drives you. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think, yeah, I certainly young people these days have a lot more choices that they can make. Um, uh, then, I mean, I'm not that old, but, uh, I had kind of this linear path that went in a certain direction for my career. Um, and, um, it's not until later in life that I'm trying to get off that beaten trail, if you like, um, myself. So I think this is really wonderful advice. I wish you would have told me this a couple years ago. Mm. I'd <laughs> so. also say on the practical side that, you know, when I started off, my photography career, I had worked numerous years and had saved uh, a nice little amount of money that meant I was not completely risking it all or taking um, or taking risks to get the photograph to make it into the newspaper. I, I, I had a bit of a cushion which gave me a little bit of time to kind of Feel, feel myself out in the career and, and build my reputation I, without being desperate to make money with each photograph that I made. I think that is, you know, from the practical side, really important. And to use everything you had. I used to take assignments where I wasn't particularly interested in the assignment, but that assignment got me to a place that I really wanted to travel to. So I would, you know, all of a sudden find myself in Uganda and I'd be making images for a tourism company that I, you know, wasn't necessarily that interested in making, but then I was able to um, cover something else because I was already there. So I would take advantage of that um, to make the images that I was really passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, looking at the opportunity that was presented and all the other things that you could do with that. So yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and I guess there's no regrets about leaving the investment banking industry. <laughs> no, no. 
I mean, I'm not going to say, gonna say, I'm not gonna say <laughs> that most of the people that I was in investment banking with at the time are not doing incredibly well. They are. Um, but that just wasn't my motivator. Yeah, no, well understood. So, well, thank you so much, uh, Alyssa, for, for joining us today and for sharing your journey. I'm really inspired uh, by all that you've shared and how you've shaped your career. I think it's a very interesting way, um, or your career, your, your career journey, journey excuse me, um, and how you've given back to the communities that you've literally worked in. So um, I certainly, oh, I didn't ask you, sorry, I need to ask you something before we sign off here mm-hmm. about your upcoming exhibition um, and talks that are happening. Would you share a little bit about that, please? Because um, I know you're going to be in London um, in the next couple oh, of months. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, please. My exhibition is in Venice. It's up until the end of November. It's called Covering Beauty. And it's in Palazzo Bembo with the ECC. Uh, it's covering 20 years of those moments of, um, of beauty that I've found in conflict zones around the world. Um, I'm giving two talks in London. Well, one is in Bristol at the Royal Photographic Society on June the 20th. And the second is at the Frontline Club in London on June the 21st, which is Tuesday. Um, Both of those um, talks are available online to stream. The Royal Photographic Society talk is free. Um, If you happen to be in Bristol, please come. If not, please join online and the Frontline Club as well as a live as well as um, streamed event. No, that's wonderful. Unfortunately, I'm going to miss you by a week. I'll be in London um, shame. a week later. So <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. Um, but certainly we'll have um, the links to, to the events um, on the website and to share with our listeners. So, and I'm sorry, again, you said the in Venice, the, um, the exhibition is until November? The end of November, the 27th, end I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. Okay, we'll have that information there for our listeners. So, um, so thank you very much once again for joining us. I really appreciate your time and um, sharing um, um, your journey. It's been really um, inspiring. Um, and I am in complete awe of you. I probably, I'm a mother and I probably would have been a little bit panicked, but I, I'm going to glean some um, good parenting uh, um, practice from your mom and <laughs> keep my mouth shut when I know, <laughs> <laughs> even though I'm worried, but, uh, but yeah, really appreciate you taking the time and um, encourage all of our listeners to have a um, certainly look at your website and hopefully be able to attend um, your show, your exhibition um, in Venice, as well as the talk. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Darcy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Wonderful. And I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Women's 17 podcast, Conversations with Global Women, Changing the World, One Sustainable Development Goal at a Time. Uh, We welcome your feedback from today's podcast and wish you a happy, safe, and productive day. Thank you.